0: Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Each week we explore the world of data by talking to the people shaping its future. You'll learn about new data technology and trends and how data teams and processes are run at top companies. The Data Stack Show is brought to you by RudderStack, the CDP for developers. You can learn more at rudderstack.com. Welcome to the Data Stack Show. Today, we are going to talk with Vijay, who is one of the founders of ThoughtSpot, which is a hugely influential company in the world of BI. Kind of came of age along with Looker in many ways. You know, Somewhat of a different audience, Kostas, but obviously he knows what he's talking about when it comes to analytics. And amazingly, he started another analytics company, which is fascinating. We've talked to a couple people now who came from a world of sort of decade-defining analytics and have started like subsequent analytics companies. And so part of what I want to ask is why and, you know, what's the motivation behind that? Obviously, there are still major challenges to be solved, major opportunities to be really taken advantage of. And uh, yeah, that's just fascinating. To me. So that's what I'm going to ask about. Yeah. And so- I want to
1: talk with him about product analytics more yeah. specifically because the new company is about product analytics, right? Yeah. And it is like an interesting breed of analytics. There are products out there, right? Like 150% sure that he has some very good reasons to start the product analytics company today. Right? So there's probably some things that have changed and they have created like they make makes today, like a good timing to do that. So it'll be super interesting to see and hear from him, like what the reasons are for that. What are the differences between like the previous, let's say, wave of product analytics tools and what's the opportunity because the opportunity also corresponds, let's say, to a need. So uh, let's see what made him like to start the Combining Product Analytics.
0: Yeah, I agree. And we need to figure out how NetSpring works, of course, under the hood because it sits on the warehouse. So uh, yeah. let's dig in and find out. Vijay, welcome to the show. We are so excited to chat with you.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm excited too.
0: All right. Well, give us, uh, give us your background.
2: Yeah. Vijay Ganesan, I'm co-founder and CEO of NetSpring. We are a stage startup in the product analytics space. My background before this, my co-founders and I did a company called ThoughtSpot, which is now a leader in the business intelligence space. Prior to that, I spent some years in, in Oracle. People started working on business intelligence analytics systems. So my DNA is building price class data analytics products.
0: Very cool. Can you, there are so many things to dive into. ThoughtSpot has been such an influential company in the world of BI. Can you give us just the brief story of the founding? Were you at Oracle when you know the idea came about to found it?
2: Yeah, I was at Oracle, I was part of, you know, Oracle, which is uh, which is part of that, you know, the first generation of what people call big BI, right? These are very large, very complex centralized bi environment where you know you bring all your data into a central repository and then you write you know you have these armies of people building very complex analytics so very large centralized team that is building analytics for businesses and so that, that that was sort of like the first wave of bi you know and then there was the second generation of systems that are what are called departmental BI, where people said, you know, this centralized, complex, large systems are too painful. You know, I'm gonna buy a, a desktop license of Tableau and, you know, mm-hmm. somebody writes a SQL, pull some data out of Teradata, and I got it on my desktop and I got reports going and I yeah. don't care about the central team, right? Yeah. And that was a lot of value actually, you know, it sounded we you know we used to play it down, but actually it was huge value that these companies brought, the yeah. tableaus and the clicks with the departmental solutions simple and easy, very business user-friendly. That's um, almost complex
0: Salesforce salesforce esque right? Like sort of the no software, like, you know, the user can access this, et cetera.
2: Well, it was still, it was still, it was, you know, when they started, it was all like Windows desktop installed and so on. So it wasn't SaaS yet, but, but the thing was, it was easy. It was very easy for a departmental youth person who didn't have to depend on ETL teams and BI teams yeah, to and get user. Their stuff done, right? No, they just, they, all they needed is, say, hey, give me, just dump some data out of just the data I need out of your central system and I can then do my own thing, right? So, and that was huge value. And, you know, the next generation of BI was bought by these folks, right? So that was the second way where you solve the problem of sort of these very complex, centralized, very sophisticated systems, very highly scalable, very performant, highly sophisticated. You can do some incredibly complex analytics, but it takes months. And, you know, and then you have this very easy to use, very quick get started, you know, simple, you know, visually very appealing, easy to use. That's the second generation, right? And so when ThoughtSpot, when we started, we said, look, why why can't you have the best of both worlds, right? Why can't you have enterprise-class systems that is centrally managed, but also make it very easy for business folks to get to Mm. the data and build analytics with it? And then coupled with this idea that, hey, we use search for everything in life, why not for data, right? Mm. And that's when we hit upon this idea that, what if every business user simply has a search bar, like Google, and they ask the question of mm. their centralized, governed yep. data, and they get a report, and they're done. Like, you know, They don't yep. have to go install anything on their desktop or you know build a shadow de- dat- departmental IT team. Yep. And Now you've got the best of both worlds. You've got the enterprise class, scale, performance, and you've got your self-service for business folks. And, and so that's really the third generation of, of BI that, that we are shared in.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. That's the, uh, I, miss, I spoke too early. That's really the sales force, you know, when it became SaaS and then truly the end user could access it. Now, when we were talking before the show, you made a statement that I thought was so interesting, you know, back in, I guess it was 2012 or around that time when, you know, when you found a dot spot, which is a really interesting time, by the way, because like, you know, you have sort of the data warehouse emerging. I mean, there, there are a lot of things sort of happening at that time that were nascent. But you described BI as mature. You know, your BI was mature when we founded ThoughtSpot. And the more I thought about that, I thought, you know, maybe some people would maybe not disagree with that, but be surprised by that. Probably people who, you know, maybe weren't doing analytics on a large scale back then. But can you describe that a little more? Like what, yeah. what does mature BI look like?
2: Yeah, so there's, you know, there's the, when I say BI was mature when we started, it was mature in the sense of the kinds of analytics that you could do in these systems was pretty mature. In other words, any kind of analytics anybody wanted, you could do in these traditional systems, right? But it was just that it was very painful. It took weeks and months to do that, right? So so, so, so what you can do through a taskbar or a looker, these types of tools, the next generation tools... It's something that it's not something you could never do analytically, right? You could go mm. and use business objects, and you know, with if you had a five people experts, and give them two months, they will build it for you, right? But so that's what I mean, like you know, that there is analytically it was mature, but the delivery mechanisms were too prim- primitive. It was too mm. cumbersome. It was not effective in the sense that by the time you got this report done and to your business folks, it's already too late, right? Because business is moving too fast. So That's what I meant by, you know, there was maturity on that front, yeah. but on the, on the usability and the, you know, democratization and the effectiveness for business.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it went down market too, right? With the ThoughtSpots and the lookers of the world, all of a sudden you didn't have to be an Oracle customer in order to actually, you know, sort of deliver insights.
2: That's right. Absolutely.
0: Yep. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay. Well, let's talk about product analytics because NetSpring is a product analytics company. And can you just give us, give me the, you know, the one minute explanation of what NetSpring is?
2: Yeah. So NetSpring is next generation product analytics, right? So we we are warehouse native product analytics. We're the first warehouse native product analytics company that brings the analytical power of business intelligence to the world of product analytics, right? So you can think of us, uh, in a nutshell, for data folks, uh, the way we try to describe it that really hits home is, think of us as Amplitude plus Looker in a package working directly off Snowflake. That's wow. the imagery that, uh, that, you, uh, that the best describes us.
0: Yeah, that's so great. You know, one of the reasons I love that is because in my past and trying to you know, build these sort of stacks, it's like I've taken Looker and like tried to turn it into Amplitude and There are so many, it's fully capable of doing that as a tool. It's actually interesting to mention, you know, it's like all the, you can sort of build whatever you want. It's not like anything's off limits, but it's also like, oh man, it takes, you know, weeks to build a cohort report and Looker that is basically out of the box in Amplitude. And then at the same time I've tried to take Amplitude and like, you know, do some crazy stuff with it. I would say it's actually the SaaS systems tend to be much more inflexible when you're trying to you know, do more complex querying. So I've definitely felt that tension, which is interesting. And then ultimately, I think everyone probably ends up in the data warehouse just because that's, you know, where you end up being able to perform the types of queries with flexibility that you want. Is that sort of the dynamic that NetSpring is responding to?
2: Yeah, you said it. I think the, so, so this is the world people are in, right? So either you are in the world of product analytics vendors, you know, what we sort of Call first-generation product analytics, you know, with magnitude mixed panel, great products, by the way. Either you're in that world where they're purpose-built for product analytics. You want to do retention, you want to do cohort analysis. They're built for that, right? They give you easy-to-use UI, very nice UIs. You can quickly whip out a funnel and a cohort analysis, all that stuff, very easily, right? So for that first level of analytics, they're actually great tools, right? But this, but when you have the next question, right now, that's where the problem comes. You don't mm-hmm. have the power that you have in a BI tool to write arbitrarily complex queries and do the kinds of analytics, and so then you end up in this other world of BI. I, but then these tools are not really built for you know time series and event oriented processing mm-hmm. and so on, right? So you know, I, you know, we were talking earlier, Gustas, you were asking what is the difference? What is the difference in the nature of this data, right? What you know? So the way I describe it is see if you think of businesses there is reporting on outcome like for example i want to report on how many orders did i take today on my website right that's reporting on the outcome right but when an order gets placed there's a whole bunch of interactions that users go through before that final order gets committed and you have a record in your data warehouse that says xyz purchase this much amount. Right? you log in you know you do search and you're adding something to a shopping cart you're you know there are lots of interactions there's a lot of events that get captured that lead to that final state, right? The reporting in BI is about reporting on those final states. Product analytics is about understanding patterns of behavior, the set of events that lead to that final state. You're doing analysis on that. Right? It's, mm-hmm. the, it's that half of analytics that is studying patterns of behavior that lead to outcomes, and the second half is really reporting on, on, on something that happened, right? So. So, to use our analogy, right? Okay, how many widgets did I sell in North America last quarter? Okay, that's a BI reporting tool, right? Yeah, but to understand, you know, what which cohorts of users are buying more from me yeah. and why, that's a product analytics question, right? That involves product instrumentation data, that involves event streams. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so the fundamental nature difference in in the nature of the data. The second thing is the representation of the data is very different, right? So, you know. These uh, first generation product analytics tools, they are purpose built for representing that event data in, in a certain fashion that's amenable for those specialized queries, like a cohort query or a funnel yeah. query and so on. right. Now those are very difficult to express in a relational model or in a star schema type model that is typical for BI. reporting tools, right? And that's where the tension comes, right? And what we have done at XRing is we have really brought those two worlds together, right? We call it the relational event streams technology, which is our model is fundamentally relational, but we've layered this event-oriented concepts on top of a relational model. So we can work natively off data warehouses and still get the specialized processing that you have in these event-oriented systems. And that's really the, the key technology breakthrough that enables sort of the best of both worlds, right? One other aspect to this is Historically that data never came to the data warehouse, right? If you think about, you know, like product instrumentation streams, IoT, you know, your data coming skewing from your mobile phone, you know, those types of event oriented data historically never landed in the warehouse. Warehouse was sort of a small subset of mission critical business data that but that has shifted, right? You know, which is there's a fundamental shift in in thinking with cloud data warehouses. People are putting pretty much anything and everything into the warehouse now, right? And today's cloud data warehouses are amenable. That's a huge shift that's happening, right? And then if now, if the data is in there, by the way, all these tools today require you to ship the data out to their SaaS service. Data is actually going out of their your systems into some black hole somewhere. And that's becoming a big problem these days. You know, nobody wants increasingly, you know, GDPR, privacy, security, and Nobody wants data copies going off into some black hole somewhere. Right? People want control over their data, and they want it in the warehouse.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I have a question because you mentioned something very interesting here: the data warehouse, the OLAP model in general, and yeah. like the snowflake. The way that data has been like traditionally, let's say, structured and modeled to drive BI is not. Yeah good for working like with for product analytics right and with event data. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about like the technology that you built like as Let's bring to bridge these two things together, right? Like yeah. going from the very, let's say tailor-made representation of data that something like Mixpanel has somewhere in between that and what's let's say like a tabular representation of that snowflake has like yeah. how does this work because that sounds like something like super super interesting
2: yeah yeah that's the, the crux of the sort of underlying technology differentiation right so so basically the, the existing products are uh, they are typically tailored as single table type models right so they are basically you know you bring very even one event table essentially everything is stored. And they have a very fixed data models. There is a notion of a user. There is a notion of a session. There is a notion of an event, and that's it, right? This pretty much those are the concepts that you yeah. have in these data models, right? So, and this okay, and this very good for you know like traditional sort of shopping cart type applications, which is where these products originated. So, in our world, what we said is we're not going to go with that single table model, right? We're going to go with this generic model of any business entity represented as a table in your system, right? You could have a user table, you could have a document, you could have a ticket, you know, you can study journeys of anything, right? Not just users. But then some of these tables, if you imagine a table in Snowflake, some of these tables, through some annotations, can become event streams, Mm -hmm. right? So you could have a table in Snowflake that you could uh, annotate in NetSpring to say, you know, this represents an event stream. And if you think about it, an event stream really, you know, you have a Timestamp column, you have an actor that is performing the event, and you have some kind of an event type, right? You know, there's a click event or an act cart event, right? And those are only really the decorations that you need. So we started with that approach of saying we take a generic relational data model and we layer in these dec- annotations on certain data models that are that that can behave like event streams in the system, right? And then the second thing is the joinability, right? You know, how do you join an event stream? with a traditional static table. So so we've got that ability to model those relationships and so on. The second thing, a layer above, is really, if you think about the fundamental difference at the crux of it, all these event-oriented systems treat time as a first-class entity, right? In Snowflake, you know, time is just another dimension, like an account or a time. So this time being a first-class entity is very core. To these types of systems and that's one of the differences right so so in some ways you're bringing some of these specialized concepts of time series databases to the world of relational data warehouse type systems so that is one and then the third layer is really an innate understanding of concepts like a flow and a funnel and a cohort and things like that that is first class understanding of these entities that you don't have in traditional analytical tools that go off a data warehouse. So those are the three layers that that enable us to do this. Then the other secret sauce that is really around the abstractions. You know, see, at the end of the day, if you want to describe a code or you want to describe a funnel, SQL is not expressible for those kinds of things, right? The, yeah. It's not suited for it. So we have a language called NetScript, which lends itself to very succinct and elegant expressibility of these types of queries, but then this under the covers, it compiles down to SQL. Yeah. And so we that's how we sort of get the most. And so what happens then is you describe, you know, your typical product analytics type a- analysis in a language that is very natural, right? You define stages and drop-offs and churn and things like that. It, the way you describe it is very succinct and then it compiles down to SQL that is optimized for different data warehouses, right? that optimization of the SQL is also something that, is, that, that takes advantage of this understanding of the nature of these queries, time as a first-class uh, entity, the way the data is partitioned, and so on. Right. So a yeah. lot of this data is, you know, there's a sequence in, mm-hmm. in, in the data that you can take advantage of. And a user logs in, this. there is a sequence, and that's not going to change, that's not going to get updated, and so on. Mm-hmm. Taking advantage of that in the query generation is also part of
1: the, of the IPs. You mentioned time series database at some point, and that's something that like, I would like, I wanted like from the beginning, like to ask you, so, okay. Going from, let's say the completely tailor-made solutions for representing the data to like more generic, let's say database system. Why a data warehouse and not a time series database? Because at the end events are a time series, right? Like with the main difference that you have like more dimensions on just the time one more time very soon right yeah
2: great question this is you know when we started this is exactly the question we asked ourselves what is the you know kind of underlying system that we would uh, we would need time series databases are good for for doing operational monitoring right if you look at systems like datadog or SignalFx and you know apm type systems they're great for that essentially you know they're good for visualizing and rendering fast-changing time series data, right? If you look at these monitoring tools, there essentially a lot of it is simply, I want to see a temporal view of some metric, and I want this to be, com- be able to compute this very fast incrementally and be able to ingest at extremely high rates and so on, right? So, so you know, they are really purpose built for those kinds of visualizations of time series data. But if you look at product analytics, yes, it is event-oriented, time-oriented data, but the kinds of analytics you do is very sophisticated, right? It's you're you're not simply looking at okay, what is my uh, temperature at this point in time, and how's it trending, and so yeah. on, right? You're going, you're studying, you know, these sequence and these very complex, like, sophisticated behavioral patterns, right, which require uh, which which require a lot of massaging of the time series data. In a, say, in a very similar fashion to the kind of things that you do in a bi slide system on a data warehouse. Mm-hmm. right? So so it was closer to the compute patterns were closer, the analytical patterns were closer to what you do in, in a data warehouse in a BI type system than you do in a time-series database in a monitoring type system. And that's mm-hmm. why we chose that. Right?
0: Makes a lot this, of a can, sense. Can I jump in and mm-hmm. ask a question? Because this is, sorry, this is so interesting. So uh-huh. one of the reasons, like I... One of, I think one of the reasons, like, okay, so if we take a typical, like, SaaS product analytics, tool, well, they use a time series database. And there are a number of advantages to that. But also controlling the underlying data model allows them to create safeguards for their users, right? So that, you know, you can reliably produce a funnel report or a cohort report. How do you manage those safeguards when you are warehouse native? Because the data can change underneath the tool, right? I mean, the data can change underneath NetSpring, right? And a different table, you know, a table may change that represents some sort of important, you know, metric in a funnel report. And so there's certainly the advantages of, like, modeling from a time series standpoint, but also having a single... Model also create safeguards for the user. So, how do you manage that, and how do you think about that from like a data modeling perspective? Because you don't have as much control necessarily.
1: Yeah, you know, first of all, I mean, if you have a
2: purpose-built system with a purpose-built data model that is that that is not even exposed to the user. Right? You don't even see the underlying data model, and you know, it's just you know there is this out of the box concept of a user and so on. There's only everything has to fit into that data model and so on. So, you know, clearly those are easier from a management point of view, right? I mean, there's nothing you can screw up, right? You can't join the table or link correctly to some other table or something like that, right? But then it's got a lot of deficiencies, right? You know, there's, you know, there's this data shipping off to these other systems. These are very constrained. Like, you know, we were talking to some customer who was studying document journeys and they were trying to twist this document entity into a user entity. I was like, you know, mm-hmm. there's all these artificial things. Yeah, I, I want, you know, very difficult. So like, I I yeah. want hierarchies. I want, I want to study behavioral patterns by account right? or you know, product yeah. hierarchies, product categories. Exactly. I mean, all, this, all this stuff are very, very yeah, difficult to do with these rigid data models. Yes, they give you some ease in, in terms of you know, their purpose. You know, you can't really mess up the data model, but then yeah. there's much uh, deficiencies in those models, right? Yeah. Now, in some ways, you know, you're talking about a classic problem of, I've got this very general purpose, you know, very sophisticated tool that can model anything, which comes with advantages, but then you can potentially shoot yourself in the foot because you pulled yeah. the wrong table out of the warehouse, you joined sure. it the wrong way. And whereas in this purpose build, you have no choice. You know, they give you out of the box some canned stuff and yeah. that's all you do. So there's definitely the trade-offs. But what we've done is we've said, look, I think the value of going against the warehouse and being able to address anything that's available in the warehouse is huge. This is benefits. I mean, the kinds of analytics you can do is phenomenally more sophisticated, business impacting. It's not just the siloed product analytics. Sure. It, it's business metrics, not just product metrics, right? So the advantages far outweigh some of these challenges we have of, hey, you know, what if somebody goes and just posts the wrong thing, does the wrong thing? But the way we ch- tackle that problem is two things. One, what you see, the view into the warehouse that you get through NetSpring can be tightly controlled by the data engineering team. They can decide, you know, there is this notion of data sets, logical entities that you create. They are the only ones that you can expose to your business folks, right? You can also control that this group gets access to this, but not this other thing. So you're not exposing the entire warehouse to folks. You're exposing what they need. And there is some notion of an application that has a, you can then say for this application, for this group, for these set of users, this is what is relevant and they can expose that. That has huge advantages because the central team that is responsible for the warehouse and the data model, they have control. Because end of the day, from a governance, security point of view, they're mm-hmm. accountable. So, so it gives them that, that control. But then you can self-service for the business folks. On the business side, what we're saying is we have these templates. So the same kinds of templates that you have in these product analytics tools, we have that. So you launch this template to create a covert. It's a wizard point and click type interface where you're not you know, writing SQL, you're not doing join. You're just like filling the blanks and boom, you get a report. So that's another way we have these guardrails for for at least the you know the non sophisticated users the basic users who can who don't get you know tripped up by you know having to work with a data warehouse so yeah. so i think it's possible to get the you know to be warehouse native to get the power of what the warehouse offers but with these controls in place i think it's possible to to provide the best to both worlds sure
0: yeah i mean i mean that's kind of the dream right like you wouldn't export you know SAS product analytics data into your warehouse, if there weren't an issue with, you know, trying to query the data. And exactly. the questions. So yeah, super interesting. Sorry, Casas, I had to ask just because I've, you know, tried to build product analytics on the warehouse and that's, you know. Yeah. No easy. worry,
1: No, no worries. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, We're, one thing i add, you know, the,
2: sorry, what Eric was saying, you know, around, you know, you described, you know, the difficulty of using, doing product analytics and BI tools and BI had brought in, you know, and you're absolutely right. What people end up doing is they export the data out into warehouse. They're writing, you know, Looker and more, writing SQL basically, right? And it's extremely painful. One, we solved the problem, but there's also another, the other problem we solved, which is it's not just, it's this interoperability and it's the seamlessness of this analytics, right? So you want to be able to jump back and forth between these two worlds, Right? You start off with uh, you're studying a cohort of users that exhibited a certain behavior, right? That's drop off, right? You want to take that drop off and you fork off into this more BI style analytics that brings in account information, support information. But then when you're done with that, you want to bring that back into this bundle analysis and further yeah. continue your analysis. It's that seamlessness of the analytics that goes between these two worlds and that's that's always been a problem because you exported it out of Amplitude, you ran your looker report. Two weeks later, and the business guy got a report. Okay, what do I do with it? How do I upload this back into my yeah. product analytics tool and continue my analysis, right? And so let's add to the problem that, that we have today. Instead, if you have one tool against the warehouse, you've got everything in one place. You can go back
1: mm. and forth between these two flavors of analytics all in context. I want to ask you something about like SQL. And you mentioned that okay, SQL is, let's say, not exactly like the best syntax out there to ask these questions to the data warehouse. It doesn't mean that it cannot be done, but it's like hard for a user like to work with this syntax. You also mentioned that you have like introduced like a new language that's called NetScript. Can you elaborate a little bit more and also give us like an example or two about like what makes it so hard when we are talking about product analytics, like to use a language like SQL to do it? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, SQL
2: obviously is you know it's a great language. You know, the lingua franca of data, right? I mean, it's like you said, we are we generate SQL at the end of the day, right? Yep. But the expressibility of things above SQL—that's that's really what we're bringing to the table, right? One layer above above SQL and SQL. So the crux of expressing SQL product analytics queries in SQL is really around the nature of this type of analysis that you're doing, right? If you think about if you have an event table. And you're studying, this is patterns, right. That requires a lot of, you know, and I'll give you a simple, it's a little bit simplistic, perhaps is a lot sort of self-referential type things, right. That, you know, you first have to get all users who did this particular event, right? That's another table and on the table, then you want to be able to do the next level of things. The so the product analytics queries in the world, in the SQL world are often like you take your table you write a snippet of SQL to get a subset of the data. Then you take that and you write another SQL that takes another subset of the data. So it's sort of layered above and you're painting all these things together, right? And that makes it very difficult, right? If you look at these kinds of SQL that you generate for these funnels and paths and so on, you will see these layers and layers of, of SQL. Because the the, all, the results of a particular stage of your analysis is a function of all the previous stages, which is not the case in BI type queries, right? You know, you're just reporting on that final yeah, you know, final stage. So that's the thing, right? There is this, there are these computations that depend on previous computations that depend on these previous computations and so on. There's this chaining of computations that are very difficult. And before you know it, you have 10 pages of SQL, right? Yeah. So that is the expressibility aspect of it. The second is, and this is true in general, not just for product analytics queries, is a composability and reusability of SQL. So I write a big chunk of SQL and I give it to you and you want to change, you know, yeah, I'm filtering for West region, you're going to filter for East region, and I want to then, I'm looking at it by product and you want to then break it down by sales or whatever, right? The composability and reusability of SQL is very difficult because you have to go and do surgery within that SQL, right? You know, there's some WHERE clause and you have to insert your thing and so on, right? What if there was a higher level way of doing it, right? And I gave you a chunk a chunk of SQL and you said you took that and you said, Hey, I want to extend this and say now I want to break it down by this other dimension. Right. So that is something that this new language brings, right? Where you can extend it, It's composable, right? And it's sort of like Lego blocks that you can build on top of each other. And the system knows how to then do surgery on the underlying SQL to produce that final SQL. Yes. Yeah. So expressibility, composability, reusability, and right? those are the things that, that, where SQL falls short in
1: this world of product Android. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Going back to something else that you mentioned, like at the beginning of our conversation, that people started like using these product analytics tools and it was great, as you said, like, it's so easy, like a visual interface to go and create like cohorts and all that stuff. But then they reached like a point where like they wanted to do something more and like it wasn't expressive enough to do that. So, and the reason I'm bringing this back is because I want to ask you why the user interface, like this graphical language is not enough and we need SQL or we need Netscript or what, whatever else out there, yeah. like to complement what someone can do for product analytics, like on the, the user interface. Yeah. So,
2: so, so the, we, the way we like to describe this is what you can do today in traditional tools is answering the first question. Like, mm-hmm. And if you think about the primary value, a lot of these tools brought to the table is really, what are people doing in my product? That's the first question every product manager wants to know. Right, and you know, I release right? Whoa, what are people doing? I release a new feature. How many people are using it? Right, you know, is it being so? That first level of first, answering the first level of questions, it's actually quite, quite good. And we have replicated the same kind of easy to use template for the first level of question. Where it falls short is the follow up question. Right, you know, okay, you told me that this is my conversion rate. Right, I mean, but why is it that that this conversion rate dropped, uh, you know, between uh, 9 a.m. and uh, 4 pm yesterday. Right? What yeah. happened? What? And then, you know, why are, you know, within that? Why, or what are the patterns, right? Are there certain patterns, right? Are certain types of customers converting? So it's the next level of question, right? And the next level of question, it is a free-form ad hoc uh, interface that you need for expressing that, right? You can't. You know, then you can't build templates for every possible next question, right? You can build templates for that first level of questions. The next level of questions is very ad hoc. People see something, say, "Oh, you know, maybe Maybe. this is something to do with you know this these campaign that we ran last week, and that must have been the thing, right?" I want to bring in some campaign information. So, the answering the next level of question is where a lot of these tools fall short, and they fall short for two reasons. One is you don't have an interface where you can do these ad hoc exploratory analysis. Forking off from your templated analysis, right? So imagine you're in Amplitude and you're forking off to do look or type query. Right? So that that's not non-existent in these tools. The second thing is oftentimes the next question involves context that is not in the product instrumentation stream. You know, this is data from Salesforce, this is support systems, yes. you know, this is other systems, you know, that have nothing to do with, with these product analytics data sources, right? So that's the second thing, right? You need richer context that's non-existent mm-hmm. in these tools and that is the warehouse. And so, so so that's where the second level of, you know, answering the next question problem comes in, right? And to incorporate that that business context, you need to be able to, you would have a modeling capability that can reflect your Salesforce schema, your Zendesk schema and your other schemas, right? And be able to mix it with the product
1: streams. Yeah, 100%, no, it makes a sense. Okay, and one last question for me the microphone back to eric one of the things that there's a lot of like conversation about is pricing of data related infrastructure right like there has been a lot of like conversations about like the consumption based pricing like the innovation that happened there like with snowflake but there's something let's say there's some kind of convenience with this previous generation of tools, right? Like I, I knew that if I went like and used like panel, regardless of like how, let's say, b- b- complicated might be like the pricing model they have at the end, when I use the product, I know exactly or almost exactly what I'm going to be charged for, right? When we started like putting layers on top of like other infrastructure, like we have Snowflake and then we put like NetSpring on top of it, right? We start having, let's say, we start like using and getting priced and charged like for different things and communicating this pricing to the, to the customer, the user of NetSpring in this case, it's probably not the most easy thing to do. Right. And I ask you that, like as a founder as someone who's building a business now and not the product itself, how do you deal with that?
2: Yeah, It's a great question, you know, if, you know, so yeah, the pricing model does get a little more involved in this composable CDP world we're talking about, right? Where previously I could go to a product analytics vendor, I get instrumentation, I get product analytics, I get a compute engine, I get storage, I get everything, right? All in one package, right? And I have to deal with one vendor. Now with NetSpring and this new world we're living in, I have to deal with Snowflake, I have to deal with stock, I have to deal with NetSpring, I have to deal with three Three vendors at the end of the day i get best of breed in all of these when right? i get the best instrumentation i get a flexible data model i get all the business benefits i get next generation product analytics but i have to i have three contracts that i have to work with three vendors to put together a solution so so you know in some ways it's sort of like your classic you know do you go with best of breed or do you go with sort of a single vendor that can give you everything right And you know there's some pros and cons to that right but there is another dimension to this around pricing, which actually is one of the big reasons why people are attracted to NetSpring, right? So if you look at the way the pricing is done for tools today that are very event-oriented, right, they're priced based on events, right? You know, so many events, clicks per month, so many events per month. So, so these things become prohibitively expensive at scale, right? When you're talking about, you know, you know if you're talking about like, you know you know like take a zoom for example we're on zoom right think of the number of events zoom generates in a single day right it's hundreds of billions of events a day right so so now this is of course extreme scale but at large scale people cannot afford to be paying by you know thousands of events millions of events right? it just gets prohibitively expensive but the reason this is even bigger problem is most of the data you will never do any analysis on right yeah. I mean, a lot of these tools i'm paying by event but 60 70% of the data and nobody is using but i'm still paying and so whereas in this new world you know the you can put a lot of data into your snowflake storage cost is fairly, relatively cheap right you can dump you know petabytes of data and you can you know but you only pay for the co- data that you query mm-hmm. If and only if you query so if 70% of your data and nobody is touching you're only paying for s3 cost which is much much smaller than what you're paying these other vendors now where every event whether you use it or not you're paying a lot of money whereas in this new world there is a lot of pricing advantage and yes it's complicated in terms of having to deal with multiple vendors but at the end of the day our belief is you could pay an order of magnitude less than you would pay one of these prepackaged vendors
1: that's great since so i'm happy that you like, share this because I think like many people out there are, like, confused, right? And, of course, like, it's very easy also to end up in situations where you get, like, inflated bills at the end. And it's the complexity is, like, much higher when you have, like, to deal with the many vendors. But it is important, like, to hear that. If you're, you know, if you're getting, if you're a small company, you're just getting
2: started, you know, you've got very low volume. You don't have data teams, IT teams. You don't have a warehouse. I mean, you should go with three solution. That's the right thing, you know, for you. Although these days spinning up a warehouse is very simple. I mean, you know, yeah. getting Rudder Stack working is like really simple. We got it working in like a day, right? So these things are not as difficult even for small startups. We're seeing people, you know, like warehouses typically appeared in companies much later down the line. They're appearing now in like
1: so early, right? Again, it's just
2: so easy to spin it out and so on. Yeah.
1: Hundred percent. I think Like my opinion is that what has happened is that like the technology has matured like that fast, that it's literally so easy to go and spin up like all these tools, but it's like, what is missing is probably the maturity from the industry to use effectively these tools. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of education, I think that like needs to happen. And that's where like in many cases. You know, like people are like getting burned at the end because they're like, okay, yeah, sure. Like let's get like Snowflake, it's very easy, like to set it up and start using. They have like pretty much no idea what they're going to do with it. And going through like fast iterations and making mistakes. Yeah. Like these things cost and when you don't get like value at the end, gives like a bit of a bitter taste at the end. Right. Right. But I definitely think that it's, uh, it has a lot to do with education at the end and like how people. Know what to do, actually, and what questions like to seek answers for. Anyway, so, Eric, all yours. I really
0: monopolized this conversation, so... No, it's great. I've learned so much. This is a... I'm so interested in the term product analytics after this conversation because, you know, we think about product analytics on one hand, as you described it, it's really more event-based data. You know, it's understanding interactions with a customer that lead to certain outcomes over time. But you get into the world of combining, to your point, other data sets, right? So, you know, you can bring in the Salesforce, you can bring in, you know, ad platform performance data. And of course, as a marketer, one thing that I think about that I've actually heard lots of data teams, you know, discuss is like something that's particularly challenging is attribution, Right. It's really difficult to build a good attribution model that reflects what's actually happening in your business, right? And you sort of have two extremes, which we talked about before. Either you, know, you sort of use the Google Analytics or, you know, the amplitude, like here's your default model or set of options, or you work with your analyst to build it. And anyone who's tried to do that, which if you haven't, you know, fair warning, it's you know, pretty. It's pretty brutal to build multi-touch attribution model, you know, using brute force SQL in the warehouse. But w- what's interesting is with this in between of sort of having a lot of that sort of let's say outsource for you, a la, a NetSpring, and you have access to the data that actually becomes pretty interesting. But then, like, what does that mean for the term product analytics? Because now you're getting into yeah. a world where you can do a lot of interesting things, and you know that's kind of Maybe people would classify that under product analytics, but you're talking to like a pretty wide variety of users at that point. Yeah,
2: that's a great point, Eric. You know, the, we use the term product analytics because it's a familiar term that everybody understands. At least you're sort of zeroing on a certain category that you. But yeah, you know, it's um, uh, you know, uh, it's much broader, right? It's like it, like the marketing thing you described. You have a couple of customers that are. Uh, it's basically top of the funnel, right? You know, you're really. It's not. It's even before people get to using your product, right? Yeah. product is typically after your people have started sure. start using your product. This is top of the funnel, you know, what are, make, what campaigns are working, you know, did this, what's driving, you know, acquisition, you know, conversion, you know, activation and things like that, right? This is even before people start engaging with the product. Right? So, so in some sense, it is the conceptually it is the same type of analysis. It happens to be a, you know, funnel happens to be, you know, the top versus after the users are saying, but yeah, so. You know, so so if you think of it as a category, you know, product analytics does not do justice or I think yes. it's a bit narrow. I mean, you know, so the people have toyed with different terms, you know, are they some vendors of confidential experience, platforms. It's actually a quite a confusing world. You know, there's terms like digital experience, customer experience. There's product analytics and uh, behavioral analytics. There's lots yeah. of terms. This industry is still hasn't converged on an uber term that truly reflects yeah. the things that we're talking about but yeah you know product analytics is the sort of the most widely understood we we call ourselves product and behavioral analytics and the distinction we make it, it's not so much you know product usage it could be like you know marketing that drives to product adoption and so on yeah. but the distinction we make is product analytics is really around measuring outcomes behavioral analytics is understanding Patterns of behavior that lead to that outcome, right? So that's really how we distinguish it. But yeah, I think, you know, there is, you know, there is a category that, a term that needs to be invented here that truly reflects the end-to-end journey, everything from the acquisition of the customer all the way to engagement and um, to upsell and retention.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's tough. I mean, the uh, the way that the practitioners describe it is like, ooh, I like a funnel report, but then I want to like slice it or like do a pivot on, A piece of data that I get from, you know, a completely different system, right? I mean, that's the practical reality is like, I have a valuable report, but if I can pivot or slice on like, you know, a piece of data that's like a hierarchy above that expresses like, you know, the container of the customer journey that I'm interested in, or like the subset of customers, like, because at that point, like that really is truly the blend, in my opinion, of BI and product analytics, because now you're looking at what it costs you to acquire a customer in the context of the customer journey, right? And that's those two things fully coming together.
2: Exactly. And really if you think about it, the crux of the problem is that data is all sitting in different systems, right? You know, yeah. The marketing systems are completely different from your product analytics systems, different from your AI systems. And so this is where I think everything coming into the warehouse is really the yep. for those kinds of yep. I mean, the core of it. Right. You know, at the end of the day, you have to bring the data into one place, right? You cannot have it living in fifty different SaaS services than expect to analytics across it, right? You have to bring it to the data warehouse. You have to have, you know, curation of the data. It has to be you know, modeled correctly. It has to be clean and and then, you know, that, that's when that's so so the warehouse centricity is an enabler for products like Net
0: Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, it's super exciting. Okay. Time for one more question here. So we talked about sort of the three waves of BI. We talked about the first wave of product analytics, right? Which, you know, again, like these are great tools. And I think probably a lot of companies, me said at ThoughtSpot, you use Mixpanel, right? As an analytics company. And so I think many companies will end up adopting sort of a multi-pronged like analytics approach, you know, even on a team level. So, is NetSpring is the second wave, right? Where we're sort of building this on top of a central data store that has access to all this data, right? And so we're going to close the gap between product and analytics and BI. But you, at least from our conversation before the show, you think about analytics and sort of waves of decades.
1: Yeah. So,
0: what's the third wave in product yeah. analytics? That's I'm so interested. I actually have been waiting yeah. the whole show to ask this question. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so you. Just to be clear,
2: the second wave is, you know, like you described, it's, it's, you know, much richer product analytics, right? That, that, that goes beyond traditional product analytics, silo product. It's more enterprise wide. It's for larger, it's not just for your product managers, it's for your marketeers, your customer success. It's a much richer analytics, cross cutting across any team that has anything to do with product and customer, right? That's so it's, it's a much broader yeah. thing. So the warehouse centricity is more mechanical. It's an enabler align with the order of data stack and so on right so the third wave is really around you know ai and system generated insight right so today even with a product like netspring where you can build a very fancy core you can do some pretty sophisticated analysis you know you know slice and dice and so on <clears throat> but let's say there are so, so if I have a hypothesis, I can go test the hypothesis out really well. Right? right. So I have a hypothesis that, you know, people in the education sector tend to use whiteboards more in Zoom meetings than others, right? I yeah. can go test out that hypothesis, right? All the data is available, the modeling and the, you know, everything is easy to use, point and click and boom. In five minutes, I've got the answer, right? I can test out the hypothesis. Well, what if I didn't know? I don't know. I didn't know about that hypothesis. What if the system could tell me, hey, you know, listen, you know, you're a whiteboards PM, right? For Zoom, you're, you know, hey, what if I magically told you that hey, you should be looking at folks in the education sector? That's really your profitable customer base for this particular aspect of your product, right? So, so this sort of the system generated machine learning driven mm-hmm. insights, which has been talked about for a long time, right? But it's never, you know, worked really well. Um, I think that's the next wave. That's the third generation. And yeah. there's two things there, I think, which make it possible, which is a very it's a very tough problem. We've tried it at ThoughtSpot, you know, it's a, we have we had some success, but many people have tried it and it's an extremely difficult problem yeah. to crack. But I think there's two things that are happening, right? If you look at the data warehouse ecosystem, you know, if you look at BigQuery, right? BigQuery ML is pretty sophisticated, it's integrated yeah. with the warehouse, right? You can use it natively in the warehouse right and the pretty sophisticated ml stuff right so you have that available for you to use that you can take advantage of and so these are fairly sophisticated algorithms And the second thing is you know you see like what you know like you see chat gpt right i mean the kinds of you know advancements that have happened in that in that world of ML. Uh, and so the third wave is really you know those things getting to a level of uh, sophistication maturity where they can mm. actually do more system generated insights that's the third way
0: Yeah, I agree. That's man, I've used so many of those sort of AI type, you know, analytics insights features over the years, and (laughs) they never work, right? You just end up going back to SQL, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. but I agree. That's Um, actually interesting. Like you talked about the separation of like instrumentation and ingestion from, you know, sort of the actual like analytics layer and sort of the decoupling of these certain things and it's fascinating to think about you know ai generated insights as infrastructure on top of analytics right but if you actually break the ml infrastructure out yeah. from both the data and the analytics like from an infrastructure perspective like it starts to get interesting cuz then you know, BigQuery ML does all the heavy lifting, and you need to feed it, you know, data and context, and then you have the visualization.
1: Absolutely, uh, you, you,
2: yeah, absolutely right. And we're very, very big believers in it. Philosophically, we think that's what enterprise kind of should be going towards. Right? I use a stack or a Snowplow or a Segment. I mean, these are best in breed. Right? They're purpose built for instrumentation. That's what they do. Right? And they really do it really well. Right? With schema management and And it's amazing. You can put any tool on top of it, right? So you've got best of breed product analytics. And then one of the things we're toying with is really writing output of the analysis back into the data warehouse, right? Let's Mm. say you've you've tested your hypothesis, you've constructed a a sophisticated cohort of users that you want to do something about, right? You can write it back into the data warehouse simply as a logical database view. It doesn't even have to be a physical table, right? It can be a view into that data that's already in the warehouse. And then some other tool that is doing machine learning or doing data activation yeah. can simply address that view and do some more sophisticated things. So so it's sort of like your warehouse. You can plug in all these very specialized, best of grade systems on top of it, and you can get some phenomenal value, right?
0: Yeah. Wonderful. We're, we are at the buzzer, as I like to say. Maybe we went a little long, but Brooks isn't here, so we'll have to ask for forgiveness. Vijay, this has been... Absolutely wonderful. I have learned so much, and NetSpring seems like a super exciting company. So, best of luck as you continue to build it.
2: Thank you, guys. So thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Enjoyed speaking.
0: Kasas, I think probably the most helpful thing for me was thinking about these tool sets in ways that was just really helpful. And, you know, I said, Towards the beginning, that it was surprising that he described the world of BI business intelligence as mature when they started ThoughtSpot in 2012, right? Because he referenced things like business objects, right? And, you know, if you've ever worked at a company or with a company who is using business objects, it just feels so antiquated compared to, you know, sort of a modern product analytics tool. But you know, I love the perspective of history. Right. And that what he said was true. Like there was no analysis that was impossible once, you know, sort of that level of BI came to fruition, you know, with you know, sort of Oracle's BI solution. You could do whatever you want. It was just sort of a time and cost and difficulty question. So thinking through those phases with BI was helpful. And then yeah, the same for product analytics. So we'll see how how much AI takes over the world of you know, whatever features are built <laughs> These yeah. products in the future.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. I think we are, we are going to see another, at least another wave of like BI analytics, like analytics, BI tools. That's okay. They are not like primarily driven by AI before that happens. There's still like, I think, and we see that we have like companies here that's we recorded episodes with them, that they are still like, okay, providing like new ways to visualize and to interact with the data. I mean, I think it's time to see like more innovation in this space. And there are like things that have started like changing. Like we see like what is happening with Tableau, for example, right? And so we'll see. I'm very, I'm very curious to see what other companies will appear in the next couple of months around the more traditional side of data analytics with Cisbi. And also, I think we will start probably seeing like more, you know, like specialized analytical tools, like for product analytics, for example. Right. But a new iteration of these, that it's going to be leveraging, let's say the new data infrastructure out there with the cloud data, warehouses, the data lakes, the lake houses, blah, 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 all that stuff. Right. So we'll see, I think that we're going to see like more tools like this and That's why it was very interesting to chat with me today because I think
0: it's a glimpse of what we'll see in the future. I agree. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Subscribe if you haven't, tell a friend, and we will catch you on the next one. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app to get notified about new episodes every week. We'd also love your feedback. You can email me, Eric Dodds, at eric at datastackshow.com. That's E R I C at datastackshow.com. The show is brought to you by Rudderstack, the CDP for developers. Learn how to build a CDP on your data warehouse at rudderstack.com.